Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Road to Recovery podcast. This podcast is a platform for education, discussion, and conversations on mental health. I'm your host, Amira Shah, and in this podcast, you'll get to know more about the therapeutic process, insight into life from the perspective of the psyche, and also join me in exploring current issues with other practitioners. I specialize in grief, but I'm always interested in learning about the human experience of the mind, heart, and spirit. So join me on this journey of in-depth learning about ourselves and the world we live in. Hi, thank you for joining us today, Mary Wero. Today I'm with Mary. She is a social worker working as a senior case manager in sexual health and bloodborne virus in the Northern Territory. Hi, Mary. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Amira. Thank you for having me. Mary, we used to work together um, some years ago in Darwin and I just want to say it's really, really nice to reconnect with you after all these years. Yeah, it's, it's really good to be in touch with you, Amira. I've always enjoyed um, any time we get to spend together. It's, it's insightful and it's fun and it's full of smiles. So. <laughs> yeah, um, for our listeners, uh, Mary and I, we shared an office for a period of time and I truly believe that the both of us had the biggest smiles. Um, yeah. <laughs> we were always grinning. Um, I don't even know why. <laughs> I can confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> and and you were sitting in front of me, kind of, and it's almost like we just yeah. kept beaming off each other in terms of teeth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I think if we were around... Um, baboons we might have been attacked (laughs) I feel so threatened because all they'll see are like our teeth flashing (laughs) start burying your teeth and clawing at us yeah it's it's like that sometimes you know someone will say oh why are you smiling and it's like oh kind of the default I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. I enjoy laughing. I enjoy smiling. And you are, yeah. with your presence, it's quite contagious. So I think we just oh, amplify, yeah. <laughs> we just amplify it. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho. That's good. Um, yeah. So you're still in the NT. And I'm still um, here. Never yeah. Left. How long have you been there yeah. now? NT, it's going to 10 years now. Where were you? I'm becoming a long term. I was in Adelaide, so South Australia before then for about 10 years as well. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I initially uh, started off my career in business. Well, I came to Australia as an international student, studied a Bachelor of Commerce and So I thought my work life would go into business. But while I was studying, I worked with with people. So I got into human services uh, when I was a student. 
But I thought that when I graduated, I would go into commerce and business. But it didn't work out that way. I think uh, the human services and the people professions uh, fit me, my personality and my existence a whole lot more. It makes sense. Um, so I've since then uh, worked in you know, human services or community services until when I came into NT and I was working in uh, public relations. Um, and I happened to go into Indigenous health, so I was working for a community-controlled Aboriginal corporation in health. And I just found so many concepts that I was excited about, but I didn't have the language to explain. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way that that sparked an interest in social sciences, like formalizing because I could see what I wanted to say, but I didn't have that social sciences kind of backing. So I went back to uni and did some study in social work. So I did a master's in social work. Uh, And so I've been working as a social worker since then. Mm. Wow, that's quite a journey. And you started off in a really different place to where you are now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I had no idea things like social work existed at all. I didn't know that. Really? Uh, (laughs) Until I found myself in it and then I thought, why didn't I know about this earlier? I'm so happy that social work exists. I like it. I enjoy the knowledge in it. I enjoy the concepts. I enjoy the... Because it's it's about people. It's it's so human. It's, It's really all about people and... People are my thing. Mm. That's why you're always yeah. smiling. Because you're always working. I think so. <laughs> you know, you know, even without thinking, if my eyes meet another person's eye, mm. even without thinking, my face just goes into a big smile without me thinking. <laughs> and so usually, usually what I notice is the other person smiling back at me. Mm. And what I normally don't always think is that I started it. <laughs> but I was smiling back at you anyway. So good. It's good fun. It's good to smile. That's interesting. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what you do now? Because when I met you, when we were working together, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you were a case manager. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were working together, uh, yes, I was case and services coordinator or something like that. Mm. In uh, what were we working in? In refugees. So yes, refugee. We were receiving people from yeah refugee backgrounds and supporting their settlement. So after that, I went often to have a baby and maternity leave and then so when I was thinking of um, coming back into work I saw this really simple job that I thought it's a really simple job I just need a few hours to get back into the work um, work environment so it was an intake officer role it was a part-time role when I went and interviewed for it um, I had a mind blank you know 
I had not worked or interviewed for about like over a year or so I was I felt I was really less than average um but they said they wanted to see me again and I thought oh no why would they want to interview me again was I not embarrassing enough because <laughs> because halfway through the interview they'd asked me a question and I just went blank and I didn't I had within me I just gave up on it I thought oh maybe it's just not time for me so I thought I just said actually I really don't know <laughs> that was my answer to this question of Mm. I think it was something like something about systems theory and I said I have no idea <laughs> anyway they called me and asked me would I consider being a counselor and I said well I'm not sure that I'd pick a good counselor because I haven't really other than the incidental you know I'm on the way to working on other things and I find myself you know having discussions and exploring concepts with people I haven't really been had the title counselor and they said, we'll support you and we'll see how you go. And if it's not really your thing, then we'll, we'll support you in every way. And if you want to move into a different role, we can do that. So I went in and I had zero confidence and I thought, this is the worst idea. But once I got in there, I actually really enjoyed counselling. And I was surprised to see I was already doing a lot of counselling in my roles. It was just not my main focus. So I had worked in housing and uh, with youth. And the whole time you're supporting a person in housing, you're actually doing a lot of counseling as well because you're reframing concepts. You're, you're using all the, those skills, the listening, the finding out what's going on there um, and what can we do, what, you know. Um, so... I found it interesting now all everything else being removed and you're in this room with a person for like an hour and that was my I felt like that was going to be my worst nightmare like how do you put me in a room with another person for a whole hour what will we talk about and then once I was actually in that room I found first of all the hour goes so quick that half the time you're thinking I need more time or we need more time. <laughs> so my biggest fear was this whole hour because in my mind I thought I'm going to be sitting with this person in this room with a door locked and we'll have nothing to say with each, to each other. But it's not like that at all. And um, I found it really engaging and challenging in that I had to go and find so much more information I had to go out like a person will bring their situation to me and we are both sitting there um, they're guiding me and taking me through their life there's the, what's happening for them and then I have to find a way to sit with this without while holding that space and yeah I found myself having to look for so much more knowledge so many more you know skills and just to work in this thing and I I really enjoyed so that kind of was my start journey into coming into my current job because um it uh it needed counseling skills so um, my current job as a well, a case manager, well, a senior case manager, but um, 
it needs counseling. So sometimes people in my work have received a diagnosis, they are not too sure what to do with it, and they're in shock or not, um, not knowing is this the end of my life. Uh, and just sitting there, or sometimes people have experienced, you know, loss, and um, so they're grieving. Sometimes uh, we have people who have had, a, say, a mental health diagnosis, and they're trying to navigate through services, and what do they do? And sometimes people are facing um, stigmas because of a condition they have, or um, all sorts of interesting things. Oh, thank you. Did I answer your question? Sorry? Did I answer your question? Yeah, I was I was really roped in there because um I when I, when we reconnected about a month or so ago yeah. and you told me what you were doing, um it really it really piqued my interest and I was really surprised that I didn't know that there was such work going on. But I remember you didn't mention as well that it's a new role. Mm. So, mm. yeah. So, yes, the role sits um, in the public health unit. So, um, but they haven't had a social worker here. Um, so it's mainly doctors and public health nurses. It's always been like that. But then... Um, because sometimes we work with people who are uh, under the order of the chief health minister, well, the chair. So um, if they want to have that social work perspective. So um, it's it's a new role, but to me, I feel like it's so necessary. It's so necessary because mm. um, of the advocacy and of the. The whole story, I feel that social work has that focus on the whole person, not just the medical bit. Not, and that story um, influences a person's uh, what's a person's behaviour. It influences um, their mental space or where they're at. It influences, um, they don't just wake up and make decisions based on a medical thing you know it's mm. everything else that's driving them and having um yeah so it's a new role i also didn't know about it um but it's it's been interesting because i'm not particularly an expert in uh, <laughs> sexual health or bloodborne virus but i know about social work i know about um advocacy i know about the things I can do are what I contribute mm. to the role. Yeah. So you're the bridge between the medical team and the clients, and you're you not only absorb the medical information and treatment and interventions, but you also um, deliver this information in a holistic, humanistic um, way to the clients, so that their psyche or their psychology and their behaviors can um, be tailored towards a better well-being because they would understand and receive and reciprocate accordingly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a bridge or an interpreter of um, 
you know, the, the health people want this person not to put other people at risk. Mm. And this person is just living their life. They're not waking up saying, today I wake up and my what I'm going to do is put other people at risk just to piss off the health department. They, they're just living their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my role is to kind of understand the outcomes that the health department is looking for in this person's life and find ways, how do I support this person to do all these things um, without uh, restricting their lives, without you know, punishing this person for who they are, without, uh, how, how do you interpret each other's worlds and, and meet each other's expectations and goals without, um, because I find that when organization and individual clash, um, usually it's the organization that we win. So it's it's mainly being a buffer for the individual and making sure that their voice or um, their story is heard mm-hmm. and that their story informs, informs, um, I don't know, something. <laughs> something so the, like that. That's the advocacy bit again. So, um, the, the reason why I keep hearing a lot of advocacy in, in your work as well is probably because um, I've been teaching um, recently and a lot of the mm-hmm. content that um, I'm covering when it's counseling uh, populations from diverse backgrounds um, or fringe populations, a lot of advocacy work needs to be um, ingrained along with the counseling work because um, you know there's a lack of awareness or understanding um, by the general population, the mainstream population and systems um, about certain groups. you know it's just um, yeah. a lack of awareness or some form of historical marginalization that is on the men now but it's you know still got mm-hmm. go. And while you're in the counseling room doing counseling, um, you also have like, it's like you have three CPUs or four CPUs running at the same time. You've got the emotional CPU, you've got the cognitive CPU, you've got the sensory CPU, and then you have working memory that has to tie everything together. And they're all working Mm -hmm. in tandem. And then you also have to come up with a way um, to to make sure their voices are heard and, and to make sure that there's Absolutely. something in place um, for some mm. uh, long-lasting or um, solid change, systemic change that can help them get the support that they need. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, and the impact of if that support is in there. So, for instance, if I'm working with someone and their situation is um, there are things impacting them. For example, uh, AOD use uh, or homelessness or um, something. And say the health team is trying to deliver medicine to someone and they say they'd be there at 10.30. So the health team goes there, they're there at 10.30. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person is not there and it's um, it, it's 
And it's frustrating because you've organized your day and you want to deliver this. It's important that this person has this medicine because that's how we'll manage, say, the viral load in someone's bloodstream. So if they don't take this medicine, the viral load will go up and that means they can infect other people. Mm. Um, so it's important that this person has this medicine. They said they'd be there at 10.30. They're not there. Now, this may be from a worker perspective. is like, you don't take this very seriously. But then from the individual's um, perspective could be, well, it started raining and I'm homeless, so I live at the beach. Uh, it started raining, so I had to go and find somewhere undercover to be. And, um, and I haven't found a way back yet to where we agreed. Uh, you know, or or I need um I need to follow around my family group or the people that I hang around at the beach with, and that's a real survival thing for that person because if they don't go along with those people, then how are they going to survive on their own out there? Um, and it's rough sometimes. So they couldn't the choices they had and the reality of the life they're living. The me as a worker delivering that tablet is not the main thing that's their problem. It's my priority for as a worker, but in the context of that person's life, that's not the priority because the priority is their survival. And that means following around that family group if they say we need to go because this is how we'll get enough shopping for this week or this is how we'll whatever it is, just just having supports that um, respond to, to the people, to the person's circumstances. And um, I don't know, something like that. And how do you, um, I guess, communicate this perspective to the medical team that you work with? So through reports and feedback, so and and through storytelling, so um, uh, so instead of something like saying, you know, he or she said they'll be there at ten thirty, I went there at ten thirty, um, they weren't there. Mm. Uh, it's it's the storytelling, it's the capturing the whole situation. Um, you know, on Monday we had we had agreed to meet here. Um, when I went there, that person was not there. So it's still the truth, but it also captures the circumstances. However, um, it was quite rainy um, and nobody, it, there's no shelter at the place where this person usually stays. So it captures the whole situation so that it's not just um, a story that says, did not attend, did not attend, did not show up. Um, it's it's more of a story. This is what was happening at that time. And so that over time, it's not just a question of ticks and crosses. It's more of this is this person's reality. This is that person's um, viewpoint. And it's um, so it's, it's through those, uh, yeah, through those opportunities, whether it's um, in the team meetings when we're having briefs and catch-ups, just you know, um, bringing in a social work perspective, you know, mm. and just saying maybe the homelessness faced by this person is the biggest barrier to us delivering 
the service. Um, maybe it's not this person, or it's not that they have a funny attitude or they are lacking in understanding. It's that if we support and address the barriers, then this person in, in themselves is not the problem. The barriers are the issues. It's not the person. You know, the person does not is not doing this on purpose or mm. it's it's the circumstances they're living in, the impact of that. Yeah, so that kind of thing. It highlights well, it it shifts that uh, notion that this person is non-compliant or irresponsible and it, and as a result maybe with such reporting measures or methods um there's less punitive um i guess mm. outcomes from 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 the the uh, medical teams or the authorities and then there's also a deeper understanding um you're able you know, people are able to develop empathy and compassion and um, have a real understanding of what these guys are going through rather than to get frustrated mm -hmm. and annoyed and feel as though they've been personally attacked because this person has wasted their time and all their efforts mm -hmm. in trying to help them. Mm -hmm. Or like it's a waste of resources, you know? Mm -hmm. I think... Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's... That's really enlightening. Um, I, I really didn't know uh, that there was such wonderful work happening where you are right now. I'm happy to hear that. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Science of the Soul. This is a short interruption to let you know that if you or someone you know are in need of more support, you can find me at Road to Recovery on my Facebook page, my Instagram, or my website at aroadtorecovery.org. I hope you've enjoyed listening so far, and now let's get back to the podcast. Earlier just now, before we started recording, we had a massive giggle now you know our tone has gone very serious um but we had a yeah. massive um laugh and we were talking about something i didn't know about because you introduced the concept to me and it was completely new to me um you told yeah. me about a group of people in the nt called sister girls um yeah. And I mistook that for sister wives. And now I know <laughs> very different things. <laughs> very different. Very different things, Amira. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about yeah. your work with sister girls? Because um, I, I know that it is a, a small population, a minority um in in the nc and maybe in other areas of australia but um you've had some contact you've had some work with them can you tell us a little bit more so i do have to start by saying i am not by any means an expert on this or and so um it's it's it my you know information about it it's limited on it's it's based on the limited interactions and experience I've had. But uh, Sister Girls are mainly transgender people from TV islands. And the, 
men men who have been born as men but identify as women and usually they're quite a fun group of people so very outgoing very fun and uh, just just full of bubbliness well that is typically but still people with uh, who face uh, challenges of uh, any marginalized population and so the story we were sharing is uh, we went to see this um, sister girl and i was with a with a colleague and we went uh, she she was staying the sister girl was staying in a place where you go through reception and we went and did our work and on the way back um, we were having conversation well my colleague was having a conversation with the at the reception and so uh, we were laughing about how that conversation was going because it was like an, an, an unspoken war where my colleague would say so. <laughs> so she has moved to this new room and she would like her things delivered and she would also like in the reception would say, well, he will get his things delivered to his room. <laughs> And and then my colleague would reply, that's great, because she expressed that she would like. And then the receptionist would go back and reply, thank you for letting us know. He will be supported to receive his. <laughs> and it was, it was um, we laugh about it, but it, it was, um, it was funny. It was funny to observe. But it's the real thing of um, that conversation of um, transgender health and tra the identity of the gender identity. I mean, if this person prefers to be uh, to identify as as a woman and use the she pronouns, you know, it's 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 interesting because what factors uh, are in you know affecting us or them, and does that impact on their mental health or um does it because because this person the official name is 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 a male name mm -hmm. and judging by just the physical factors he's just this tall handsome dude with broad shoulders and beautiful hair in a ponytail mm -hmm. so judging by just the physical factors you don't go oh you're a sister girl unless of course you uh, run into her in social circles and she's got all her bright lipstick on and she's just mm. got her high heels on and then you're like hello there what's this um, <laughs> but just in a normal day when when you run into this person uh, in a normal day they are wearing just a normal t-shirt like a guy would wear and normal shorts you're not thinking oh hello you're you're a sister girl you know you just think it's 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 another guy and so um it's quite interesting because especially if uh, you have a guy's name as well, you know, organizations are going by that. And so like I've also other times called um, one of the people I work with uh, for some reason was picked up on the streets by police and so they were in the watch house and I'm carrying on going so I've got one of my clients she's there and she's got and I need to deliver her medicines and the other person on the other um, on the other line goes first of all the person you're talking about is a man 
and then I had to take a deep breath. <laughs> I had to take a deep breath. You know, in all my super walk, fighting for his rights or her rights, you know, I have to take a deep breath and go like, yeah, okay. That's what I have on your records. That's great. And, and you know, or sometimes I'll try to be like, okay, yes, I'm aware, but they identify as a woman. And the other person on the line will be so unimpressed. You know, listen, oh. the person I have here under that name is a male. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, the, so, so, yeah, authorities and governing organizations, maybe I'm guessing hospitals and hotels and such they like from my understanding where you are they're not always very um accommodating to the individual's uh, preferred gender identity or reference is that is that what you're you've been experiencing i think it's it's just the thing of we we don't really think about we don't tend to think about it you know when Mm. i think it's it's a person process that uh, it's not something that's in our face you know so when you run into a person you don't think to ask hi do you identify as a man or a woman you know you just yeah. you, it's 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 like such a um it's it's not something you think about you know and so if if i give you um, a person's name and they're recorded as a male mm. you know you're not going to say it's confusing if someone calls and start referring to this person as a woman. You'll be like, first of all, you have the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think it's how it's all set up. So there's, um, it's, it's just an interesting observation of, you know, I didn't, even I didn't know before I started working here. And even I find myself sometimes going, um, depending on, who I'm talking to or where I'm at. So if I'm talking to an organization which is like, well, he is here with us and we have him, and then I have to think, okay, so, yeah, I don't know. In some you have to kind of evaluate the outcomes that are more important and therefore you kind of assess whether or not it is worth going through that he she battle if you just need to get something to somebody is that something Um, for your mind or do you persist so i think if someone if if i'm working with someone who say identifies as a she then i refer to them as the she Hmm. um and and in my conversations with um, with another person, I'll just refer to them how they've informed me. They want to be referred to, mm-hmm. and um, and and I just so I'll keep referring with them. And if the other person asks me why this is what we have, then I, that brings in a chance to have that conversation. Mm, okay. So when the converse, that conversation comes up and then I'll explain. And, and there are a lot of people out there who are quite um, flexible about it or who say, oh, is that what it is, you know? Right. It's just that as a first off, it doesn't always come up. Oh, or, no. Right. Okay. Yeah, people yeah. are accepting. Yeah. They're just confused in, initially. Exactly. Mm, okay. 
Well, thanks for that. You know, I, I was in Darwin for a while and I've never crossed um, my path. Yeah, I've never crossed paths with sister girls or known anything about them. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. Yeah, there's a whole population out there and it's it's interesting. It's um, It's interesting. Yeah, I bet. And what do you yeah. think are some of the stigmas um, client, that your clients have, including some of the um, sister girls that you work with? Um, I think the stigmas in, in, in sexual health or with bloodborne virus is um, the stigmas are around you think there's only a certain person who can have um, a bloodborne virus, or you think, oh, maybe they're sexually loose, or maybe there's something they did so they deserved to get it, or there's mm -hmm. something like that, or, or don't relate with them because you'll catch it too, or something of the sort, you know? So which results in isolation and marginalization, or... Um, maybe people not wanting to offer services to such populations. Um, but but all of it is just lack of knowledge, really, because any person, including your neighbor, your doctor, your teacher, your anyone could be having a, a, a bloodborne virus and, and anybody can catch it. And, and most of them are treatable, you, you know, so you can't just catch um, catch it off someone just by you know, sharing a house with them or sharing um, a workplace with a person. In fact, most likely we all are probably sharing workplaces um, with people who have a bloodborne virus or something. So, um, and they're professionals, they're in all walks of life, in every walk of life. So it's the stigma sometimes is even um, internalized. So I can think, oh, because I have a certain condition, if people find out, they will not um, treat me the same way or view me the same way. And sometimes that's true. When people have found out someone has a, is positive for a certain condition, sometimes the experience is that people have treated them differently. And sometimes that's just lack, lack of information and fear and yeah yeah can you give me an example of um or a few a few examples of bloodborne viruses i guess stigmatized society well yeah mainly hiv i think is the most stigmatized mm -hmm. um and hepatitis so most people when who hear someone has hiv they just think oh you must have been reckless or you must have been you know those those kind of thoughts or stigmas or if you have hepatitis or you must have been using drugs and you were sharing needles or there's something filthy and dirty about you but actually that's not really the case at all you know it's it's clean people it's clean people who are doing well it's it's people from all walks of life you know it's professionals and, and some people are born with it sometimes some people have acquired it in the course of their work, say through needle injuries. Some people have uh, caught it um, through, um, yeah. So it's the stigmas most of the time are just 
lack of information, but they have a real impact on the people who are stigmatized. And, and of course, the lack of knowledge where people think, oh, if you relate with someone who is HIV positive, you're going to catch it. But in real sense, you know, people, you can have a partner who is HIV positive and have a full relationship and not catch it because it's managed. It's fully managed with medication. So uh, the viral load in the bloodstream is actually undetectable. So even if you have, um, uh, say, uh, exposure, with, if someone is exposed to your blood, they actually will not catch it because the virus is not even detectable, you know. You can have it and have children who are not um, positive. You can have it and still have your full life. It's just that little added burden of you have to be making, taking medications and you have to be, because uh, it's a reportable condition. It means every so long you're, you have to take blood tests just to show that the viral load is still undetectable, things like that. Oh, thank you for that information. Um, I remember working with some clients, a couple of clients who <clears throat> were HIV positive and I wouldn't have known, I wouldn't have guessed and none of the family members mm -hmm. or kids or even the partners um, had it as well. So I was actually quite confused um, because I, I knew that I didn't have enough information or knowledge around it. And I guess I didn't have the opportunity, nor did I continue to, to, to search for it. I just knew that the medication was at a level where it's manageable and you don't spread it anymore. And it's just like any other virus that lives in your um yeah. DNS pretty much like um, yeah. herpes or something like that. You just need to manage it. Um, mm -hmm. So I just imagined it might be something like that. Um, and I was really, really glad to hear that, you know, um, modern science, uh, medical scientists and technology has really brought us to a point where you don't die from HIV anymore. It's not a death sentence. Mm -hmm. But to learn so much more from you, like the nuances, the details, it's yeah. yeah, it's really informative. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to share with us with regards to sexual health and bloodborne virus that you think we can all benefit from knowing? I think educating ourselves, educating ourselves so that we are not stuck in old thinking patterns, you know, whether like sometimes if I say to people, oh, I work in sexual health and bloodborne virus and it's like oh no poor you you're working with people with all these horrible diseases it can't be easy for you and you know it's um and you know no disease is exciting you don't have any disease but it's not all these people with these horrible horrible diseases it's not it's not as scary as you think, and it's not as isolated as you think. It's everywhere. It's in the community. It's it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's just educating ourselves and um, uh, looking after our health, uh, having checkups. So just having those checkups just to see that you're um, healthy and, and just utilizing all the precautions that are available. I mean, there's um, a lot of things that I'm learning. And, and I think we can all 
just keep learning, keep exposing yourself to new knowledges so that we are informed and we can, um, I guess we can contribute mm. by destroying those stigmas and, and making people feel accepted and part of community and um, by just our speech, how, how we speak of. Mm. Because when, when you're talking about, oh, you work with all these people with all these horrible diseases, you know, the person you're sitting with could actually be a person who is mm. living with HIV. Yeah. It was, yeah, so it's just, I think that education and that um, just being empowered within ourselves so that we are not caught up in concepts that ended in the... 1900s, but we are still using <laughs> them more view. <laughs> we are not, yeah. And then yeah. it's that inherited judgment and that we, yeah, we inherit this this sort of judgment along, mm. you know, the through through the generations about these diseases or these illnesses. Um, and mm. back then, maybe... AIDS was as scary as leprosy. Who knew? Who, who knew? You know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. It's like our inherited um, preconceptions from whoever that we learned it from um, is not in touch with the current science, and so we yeah. continue to to have um, this discolored lens on a lot of these illnesses that mm. can easily be alleviated or changed by just a little bit of knowledge mm. so if someone like me would like to learn a little bit more about mm. uh, or uh, about how to i guess demystify um these yeah, yeah, absolutely. where where would i go how would i do that like I think on the NT Health uh, website, there's a lot of information. Um, there's also in the NT there's NTAC, which is uh, which is uh, Northern Territory HIV and Hepatitis Council, uh, and and they they focus on fighting those. They do a whole lot more, but they focus on fighting um, those stereotypes. Mm. Um, so there are many organizations. Another one is ASHAM, which is ASHM. And it's also like a national kind of body that shares all this knowledge and information. So even just a quick search on, on Google and just finding those reliable kind of sources, so like pick bodies and mm -hmm. um, credible organizations that have real knowledge, which, um, yeah. They have quite good information, like the NTAC here in NT have really good posters which capture um, all sorts of families and, uh, and and maybe someone is saying, I have HIV and I live with my boyfriend, but I don't have it because, you know, or um, my husband is HIV positive, but I'm HIV negative, or my mom is HIV positive, and I'm HIV negative. You know, just that dispel those myths, just, and also creating um, different viewpoints of 
not just these type of people have it. Every, anybody, and it's it's all over through all populations. It's 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 a disease like anything else. Well, thank you very much, Mary. That was very educational, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so that Thank was end talk. You're welcome. Yeah, I just wanted to recap again. So that was end talk, Asham, and the NT Health. These are the three places yeah. that we can start our education and search on um, sexual health and bloodborne virus, the stigmas and the myths around it, just to be able to educate ourselves and hopefully slowly educate the rest um, of the communities as well that's right well it's been really really nice talking to you again um thank you so much for your time and i hope we get to speak soon sooner than later thank you amira i hope so too all right thank you everyone for listening and bye for now